Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is returning after a very busy couple of years, during which he has reshaped, rebranded, and now floated the business he runs on the public markets. Andrew Robinson came to this meeting fresh from presenting Skyward Specialty Insurance's maiden results. Perhaps understandably, Andrew was buzzing with energy, insight and good humour in this encounter, and our conversation is at times breathless and interspersed by his characteristic directness. Here we examine in a lot of detail the prospects for the US ENS markets in the light of the major reset at the last reinsurance renewal, as well as Skyward's ongoing strategies and growth plans within them. We also set the insurance world to rights. I certainly enjoyed our talk. This podcast will run by very quickly and will give you a very good feel for where Skyward and the wider market is heading in 2023 and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Andrew, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Well, thanks for having me. You just floated. We're just fresh from your maiden results. I'll just go back to your prospectus. And actually, it's a way of coming back to the first podcast that we did. After that podcast, I ended up entitling the podcast, Rule Your Niche. And of course, this is where we're going to come up against this divided by common language. Because when we use these French origin words, sometimes the English stay faithful to the French. And sometimes we completely anglicize them. And sometimes you do it the other way around. And this time, I think you'd say rule your niche. Well, for better or for worse, I'm married to a Londoner. And so in our <laughs> house, it is niche and it is tomato. And so we actually say our T's instead of D's. And where we can, we use proper English. So I have to say niche as well. So it's good that we won't call the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> you must have explained that lots of times, but that's down as one of the strategies. It's running through in a deep vein through that prospectus. Run us through what you mean by that. So look, at the heart of things, insurance is a really hard industry to have a differentiated product, right? I mean, in practical terms, the actual contract language, et cetera, things like that can be replicated rather easily. So the idea here is really just simply two parts. Part one is let's go focus on parts of the market that by their very nature are tougher, they're more complex risks, they're distressed, things that have attributes that by its very nature means that if you're going to serve that part of the market, it's harder to do it really well. But if you do it well, our view would be that's where the profit pools are. On one hand, so let's not focus on broad-based parts of the market. Let's focus on specific parts that are more complex. And then the second thing is this intrinsic challenge that we make in every part of our business to our business leaders, which is we really have to be thinking about the way that we're going to build something that is distinctive. I, I describe it in terms of having a competitive mode. And that competitive mode during good times, like we've been in, should allow us to over-earn and outgrow. And during softer market conditions should allow us to better defend our position and hopefully hold our underwriting profit. Our particular point of focus is, of course, selecting the right areas, this idea of the more distressed. The second thing is building product and service around that that's really appropriate for those segments in the market, for those niches. It's, it is about great talent because we're just big believers that great talent wins. And then a big part of it is the way that we use technology and advanced analytics, not only to improve the fidelity of our risk selection and pricing, but in the delivery of services to our customers so that they can be more engaged in risk management or other aspects of things that by its very nature could make their connectedness to our product more sticky. And that's harder to do when you're in the complex end of the commercial insurance world. Like people talk about that from the personal lines or small commercial. But when you're in the complex end, it tends to sort of focus on risk management. And so 
all of our businesses and every one of our business leaders are tasked with this requirement to have a really incisive view about the way that we're going to rule our niche. And so my grandmother would say, you know, she'd use the word schmaltzy. It's not schmaltzy. It is something that we really believe in. It's been adopted by our team. We talk about it. And by the way, we're not at Fulbright in every one of our businesses. It's a different point, but our leaders are thinking about it, which is a really important feature for who we are. I suppose ruling means you've got to be the best and you've got to have the strongest position. That's the idea. You've got the best product. People have to come to you to get the cover that they need. Is it sometimes you're the only one giving that cover? I'll give you a couple of examples that I think are really interesting. So one example is in our NH business, which is a medical stop loss business here in the United States. So an excess cover effectively. Yep. And that's a big part of the market because in the US, corporations are self-insured for their healthcare coverage. And that's sort of work down market. And we don't have a share of the market. We only focus on smaller employers. In fact, 80% of our accounts are 250 employees and less. So that's a smaller employer market. And in the US, the data for those kinds of employers oftentimes is very sparse, particularly if they're coming out of a guaranteed cost, like a you know, health insurance kind of product. And so we use a lot of really interesting big data and analytics to understand the risk. And the value in this particular instance is, is that we're able to give a perspective on our interest and the pricing on an account to the brokers before they go through the heavy lift of the data collection. And in that part of the market, that's actually a relatively slim margin business for brokers. And so if we can say, hey, this is the account that we want, and here's an indicative price. Let's say they're coming out of the guaranteed cost market. That might be something that's really interesting, and they're going to spend the time to fill out our perspective on data with the ordinary data collection that's required to be able to fully underwrite that account. That's immensely valuable to the brokers. In fact, in some cases, we've been able to look inside their books of business, identify accounts that we would be interested in providing a self-insured option on, et cetera. That's the idea of ruling your niche. That's a very unique thing we do. And by the way, we happen to partner with a very successful insured tech called Gradient. We were the first to work with them in the medical stop loss arena. That's a great example. Another great example we have an underwriting unit focused on specialty transportation, which for us is intermodal trucking. So think about like uh, maybe from port to point, a warehouse. And our approach on underwriting the risk brings together a lot of traditional information around sort of driver quality and safety, fleet quality and safety. We, of course, do it through a big data lens. So we're able to sort of figure out the signals of information that are best and, and most useful. We combine it with telematics and we're agnostic to the telematics source. So part of our power is that we can get the telematics data into a useful form for the critical information. There's like a dozen indicators that we view as critical. Things like hard braking, rapid lane changes, route selection, pull that all together into a risk profile. That's immensely valuable for us in terms of risk selection and pricing. But what we do is we make that sort of a live process for risk managers. We only work with companies that will come onto our data platforms that have a professional risk manager. And so as we add the account, they're looking at the exact same set of information that we use to evaluate the risk and are perpetually able to address safety or let's say in their fleet, any maintenance concerns or, or whatever it might be, because they're seeing that information throughout the course of their engagement with us. You know, that's an immensely valuable tool that we've added to the risk managers. And so, you know, those are a couple of examples where we've kind of taken 
maybe a traditional approach and augment it in a way that is distinctive and valuable to, in one case, to our brokers and another case to our insurance. That's really interesting. And both of those two things have in common quite a lot of technology there as well. So big part of it. It's not true in every case that new forms of risk data, technology, advanced analytics, and so forth are so critically important, but it is more frequently the case. And it manifests itself in different ways in what we're doing in professional liability. It has a lot to do with the way that we're using advanced analytics on the renewal books so that we can enable our underwriters, which are really experienced, really great you know, technical underwriters, to principally focus on new business. It manifests itself in very different ways. But again, it goes back to the business leader thinking about the leverage points in their business, the way that they're going to rule their nation, and the way that we can create line of sight to top quartile financial performance. Yeah, something else when I was rummaging through your prospectus, which was a very good read, was the captives division, something I didn't know a lot about before. I'd love you to talk about that. I'm presuming, obviously, given the state of this market, continuing hardening over quite a long period, I'm sure, you know, every time I pick up anything to do with captives, I just see that more and more are being formed. And you know, if I was a large corporation spending a lot on insurance and being asked for compound increases year after year after year and not necessarily getting any more coverage, if I hadn't thought about a captive before, I would be thinking about it now. So Run us through that and what's your strategy in there? Presuming you're doing the underwriting for these people. No, absolutely. And really great question. So the first thing about our captives that's really interesting is we are not creating new underwriting points of focus. Our captives are actually coming out of things that we're doing in other parts of our business. So we've created a lot of captives that came out of our industry solutions, guaranteed cost products. We actually did one on the A&H side, you know, using all of our expertise. And to your point, certainly it is just a true point that if you are one of the better risks, you are still going to see increasing insurance costs, maybe at a different level of increases or what have you in a hard market, right? You know, we've been there, although, you know, different parts of the markets are different parts of the cycle. But certainly there's a self-selection if you do it right. And our approach to captives is always a group captive. So it's very kind of mid-market, maybe upper mid-market focus. These are not sort of single company captives. But we've launched a very large energy captive coming out of our industry solutions on the guaranteed cost side for energy. We've done a very specific one in construction focused on crane and rigging. And so we keep adding these quite specific, they're very homogeneous focus areas. And as you rightly point out, we're using all of our expertise on the guaranteed cost side to be able to select the risks that we would allow to go into a captive, right? It has to be, you know, sort of self-sustaining. We will utilize all of the expertise we have, like those services I just described will become part of it. And then importantly, like most captives, they are retaining a portion of the primary insurance and what really is all the attritional. And we like it because it allows us to create leverage on all of the things that we have in place. And then we get to directly participate. In our case, it tends to be the $650,000 excess, like a $350,000 self-insured retention for the captive participants. We like that, right? You're leveraging all your expertise. We're realizing a bit of fee value out of that. But then we're taking the risk on the upper portion of the primary insurance. We really like that structure. It's been immensely valuable our business. And it's one of the unique things we do. If we stick to our knitting, we can then continue to invest in guaranteed cost solutions that we can lever into an adjacent captive solution. So it's mostly for fee, but then you're also insuring them in excess. 
Exactly. Excess in the primary. So if you think about like the primary million, we're taking the upper two thirds of that. And so, yeah, we realize benefits in both ways as a company. And yeah, to your point, it's been a really attractive growth part of our business. We think we do it really well. And to your point on property, we launched a very first, very specific property focused captive, again, leveraging some really interesting technology. So, and that's a harder thing to do in a captive, right? Because the nature of the volatility and so forth, but we were really thoughtful about the way that we constructed that and we feel great about it. And again, program administrators, I'm expecting that is going to be something you'll be looking to for quite strong growth as well. You're a paper provider there, but I presume it would aspire to be more than just paper providing, that you're providing all the expertise behind that paper as well. Look, I think everybody is aware that there's been a far higher level of growth into the program or managing agent, you know, delegated authority market as compared to the overall growth in PNC and commercial PNC. Our view on it is very much consistent with our ruler and niche view. We want to partner with program administrators if they are able to bring something that we ourselves cannot replicate or manufacture. It's uneconomic for us to do so, right? So owing to a technology they have, a specific capability and distribution, risk management, whatever it might be, maybe it's scale. I think we are very selective. There are a lot of really great program administrators out there, a lot of great ones. And there are equally a lot of not so great ones. And I think that we are very thoughtful. We are super proud of the partnerships we have. It will be part of our growth. I don't think it's a disproportionate part of our growth. I think we're thoughtful and measured. And as I said, it, you know, we're going to be working with folks who do things that we would find difficult to replicate. And we have examples of that in flood where owing to a technology, it's really difficult for us to do that. We do some very specific things in cargo using smart technology. And we really like that, right? And that's the way that we'll think about it. It's an extension of our rule your niche strategy. Well, that kind of brings me to a wider point. We were talking about there, sometimes businesses are going to be bringing you fee income. Do you think we'll be seeing fee income being a larger line in your P&L over time as a proportion? I probably will make two statements. First is we don't have a fee income line. So it's, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting things that have been happening in the market. There's been an explosion of fronts. I happen to be talking to you on a day where there's a notable piece of news with regard to that part of the market. We are gross line underwriters, right? Our philosophy is that you have to be able to make an attractive underwriting profit for anything to be durable. And we start there. And if you believe that, right, and you look at opportunities through a lens of what would be attractive use of capital where we can add value and we want to be a risk taker as a company, that basically means that that's our starting orientation. There may be instances where the nature of the exposure is a very high capacity exposure where we're going to put our capital to work, but we absolutely have to leverage relationships with others. Listen, our global property, we have one of the best global property businesses in the industry. A big part of it is longstanding, really successful reinsurance relationships that provide us the ability to lead the market in capacity despite our size. But we're very large risk takers there. And sure, there's fees running through, but that's just the nature of our desire to serve that market. So you will not see something that looks like a front. That's not our thing. We're really about, we're underwriting led, we're gross line underwriters, and we want to add really something quite material to the underwriting equation, no matter what we do. 
So you're not going to start calling yourself a hybrid carrier or something like that? You will not see us call us a hybrid carrier, certainly while I'm around. Excellent. No, that's pretty clear. In fact, you mentioned about reinsurance there straight away. Obviously, like any business, you buy reinsurance, you buy a significant amount of reinsurance. We've had a reset in the 1-1 reinsurance. How's that affecting you? Is it a potential constraint on your growth, for example? Obviously, you've just had Q4 results out and your net retention is higher. Yeah. Not radically, but yeah, a decent number higher, about what, six or seven points higher than it was this time last year. Is that a reflection of the market itself or is it just you wanting to retain more of good business? I don't know. When you run me through the dynamics. It's a great question. And, I, and this is obviously the backdrop is we're at a super interesting time, right? Because some might say there's a little bit of revenge of the reinsurers going on right now, right? And we love our reinsurance relationships. I think our company is a bit anomalous because it takes a bit to understand. We have two underwriting divisions that are heavy users of reinsurance. One is captives, which by its very nature, if you yeah. have a segment as large as ours that is a very large quota share structure, right? Which that is structurally set up that way. That skews the information that you see. And then the second one is global property because we're a primary writer in global property. You know, the layers that sit right above very large corporates, self-insured retentions or deductibles. We are one of the markets that leads with meaningful capacity structurally. That's And that's been built up over a dozen years. It's a very curated book of business, but it's a heavily quota shared book of business because part of our rule or niche strategy is our ability to put down large lines and be able to lead the market and dictate terms and so forth. And so that's a structural competitive approach. And as long as we deliver the great results that we deliver, we will continue to have really strong, consistent quota share support, which we've had. We just went through our 1-1 renewal on our global property quota share program. We came through it phenomenally well. But we also have, over a dozen-year period, a sub-60 gross loss ratio result, which is pretty damn extraordinary, right? It's pretty easy to renew something like that. Exactly. And so once you take those two underwriting divisions out, we actually look quite a bit like others, and we are not a major cat writer. We talk about our results and how different, despite 26% of our portfolio being property, we've been able to perform incredibly well on a relative basis. Great example is just in this last quarter, right? We picked up one point in cat despite the winter storms. We made it through the third and fourth quarter without picking up a lot of cat. And so, you know, we certainly feel good about our position and even our cat renewal, which occurs during the second quarter, we feel really good about what's happening for us. We will retain more risk now that we have more capital flexibility if we believe that sort of the risk-adjusted trade-off is sensible for us. We'll seek to do that. I suppose you're expecting that cat renewal just to reprice because it has to, right? I think that, of course, it's going to reprice because that you know that's just the market. We have not touched our cat reinsurers except for the freeze back three years ago. We of touched course. at the very bottom, you know, so that was obviously an unmodeled, you'd say somewhat anomalous event. Of course, from a reinsurance perspective, they're saying, well, there's too many anomalous events, but our <laughs> results are damn extraordinary. We expect the market to reprice. And I think more importantly, what I'm hearing is there's not a huge amount of capacity to support lower down return periods. But the flip side is I feel really confident. Like it's not a large enough spend for us to have a material impact on our performance and any of the pricing for us on our cat exposure, we're already running through what we would expect and then some for any of the costs of that capacity. Well, in overall market dynamics, it's been interesting. Obviously, we had the insurance market the last four years have been perfectly happy. You know, we used to say that the reinsurance market was the tail that wagged the dog. 
and certainly in the last four years, the dog's been happily wagging itself. And now the tail did wag. And it seems the first anecdotal evidence of rate movements in the first quarter of this year have been that, again, it has given a bit of excess momentum in the property market. And certainly your results, you're saying you're happily getting rate ahead of loss cost trends, which is yep. only good news. So again, are you seeing that reinsurance sort of wag, that squeeze from the reinsurers? Do you think that's going to keep pushing that rate momentum into the insurance market, particularly in property we've seen? Yeah. Is there displacement, for example, there could be displacement in other areas where actually it's softer? Well, listen, I think that that's a great point, Mark. We're big believers and, and have said this for a long time. The market is not one big cycle. It's a bunch of micro cycles. I'll even point you to the last three years, right? We had these crazy, crazy price increases in excess and cyber. And by the way, in both those, it was because they needed to catch up to all the lost cost inflation that was never recognized. In the case of cyber, ransomware that was running through that was changing lost cost inflation. So there was a catch up there. Now we're seeing it in property. The flip side is, you know, we saw go-go period on public DNO. Now we're seeing kind of the most, I, to me, the most irrational behavior. Our head of specialty lines, John Burkhardt, who spent many years at Chubb in financial lines, would say that the unwinding that we've seen in the last 12 months is unlike anything he's seen in a 30-year career. So you see like these micro cycles going on. The marketplace is far better off if we can understand loss cost and loss cost inflation not as a series of swings, but with more consistency. We'll see over time whether we move there. And right? I think we're more there than we were 15 years ago, You know, certainly way more than we were there than pre-Enron, but still you see a lot of it. I will point back to this point on MGAs, to the extent that the reinsurers who wanted to get close to homogeneous classes of business and did that through MGAs, that was their means to get closer. And then I've been surprised that that doesn't always produce a good result to the extent that the decisioning on that, the cycle time on that gets shorter and rewards the good ones and doesn't reward the bad ones. And similarly, you know, from an insurer carrier perspective, same sort of thing. That's really at the point where I think things will be better because like we'll see uh, increasing or reducing costs and we'll be able to reflect that through the way that we offer our capacity to the market. I feel like we're a long way off from that efficiency, but we're probably in a better place than we've been in in the past. It does seem a bit difficult to explain to clients that in excess DNO to say, well, why are you giving me 20 points off or whatever? It doesn't make any sense. Just, what, just because there were no SPAC IPOs this year and that was in my budget. Listen, we're the first public offering in the US for 2023. And I think most people know that we started our process early in the second quarter. And so guess what? We obviously started looking at our public DNO cover leading up to that and got to see it over the course of the year. So I have a front row seat on this from a buyer <laughs> side. And, so and you managed to get a firm order in at much well, lower than what you were quoted a year ago. <laughs> well, I listen, I just all I'd say is that I don't know if the world of exposure has changed. So, you know, so you can interpret from that. But listen, I think it's true in a bunch of different places. And, and a more consistent market is by and large for anybody who's a great underwriter, a good thing. I also believe tighter reinsurance capacity inures entirely to the benefit of the best underwriter. So from my perspective, when it occurs, that's good for us. I'm okay with that for sure. It's much better when it's just little adjustments here rather than this kind of crazy whack-a-mole game that goes on. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. 
when you're in this differentiated position, and hopefully when the reinsurers are handing out their more limited resources and they're not going to give it to your irresponsible competitors and they're giving it to you, what opportunities is it throwing up that obviously now your irresponsible competitors can't underwrite what they were underwriting last year? They have to be more selective. Is it opening up niches for you to go into? The answer is yes, but it also is we're getting some second order effects. So as an example, like obviously CAD is an open market right now, but we're not rushing into it because one, we don't like the volatility. Two, we think that the tide will go out, you know, and then you have to deal with it on the other side. Yeah. And how do you rule CAT? I mean, CAT rules you in the end, doesn't it? You got it. So it's hard to see a way to rule your niche. On the flip side, I'll give you two really good examples. In our transactional ENS business, that part of our business fires the peril that we really underwrite to. And because our distribution partners, which are the wholesale community, those organizations are under so much pressure on the cat placement that it's making the technical risk placement. They're looking for carriers that can give them really good, thoughtful solutions in a well-serviced way. And they don't have time to go out to the market the same way. And so we are seeing a very, very strong submission flow and a win rate off the back of that because those distributors love our business to begin with. And in times of stress, where the stress happens to be in another part of the market, it inures to our benefit in our part of the market. Another great example, though, is that we've been talking about Inland Marine for two years plus. And generally speaking, when we were a leader or a leadership team for any one of our new underwriting divisions, we're not doing like a wide open search. We're targeting a small number of people. And we've been in conversations with a small number of people for the things that we're targeting, in some cases, for up to two years. And so in the case of Inland Marine, we announced the launch and we hired a terrific leader for that, Havis Wright. But importantly, it was the property disruption that occurred. And you know, what you have is you might have a great underwriting leader at a division who's impacted because of other parts of property inside of an organization that creates the opportunity for us to go get the team. Yeah, so we've been able to access, launch, do something that we've been working on for a couple of years by getting the right person in the door. And that's one example. So the answer is yes, we're absolutely seeing it, but we're seeing it on our terms. Right? We're not deviating from our sort of strategic focus. And by the way, there are great companies out there that will be some of the best, Arch, Berkeley, you know, cycle-driven companies. And we should only ever perform at the level of those organizations consistently year over year over year over year. But our strategy is a different strategy. Our strategy is about building these positions that have long-term durability, real competitive modes. And so we avoid some of the cycle-dependent stuff that's out there. Oh, and just for any non-US listeners, Inland Marine is one of those very, very peculiarly US classes. And sometimes I struggle with it. I, when I see that line in the AMBES reports, it's a kind of miscellaneous class, isn't it? It's not really marine as such. Is it? No. Explain what's in there. Is it things like construction equipment and that kind of thing? Yeah, you can think about it effectively as just about any property that's not fixed to the ground, right? Oh, that's um, the point. That's it. So, yes. so Stuff. pretty much. And then, <laughs> and then there are classes that are fixed to the ground, but are classified as inland marine because they're not buildings, right? They're very unusual occupancies, I guess is probably the way to describe it. And that's inland marine for us. And that includes goods in transit and so forth. And there's a range of stuff out there. Some that is cat exposed, high capacity. Some things are very niche, very profitable. And then there's some stuff that is more commodity like that's in that. But it's a very profitable segment in the US. If you took the better underwriters, they're consistently delivering mid-80s kind of combined ratio. So if you can become that, that's a really great class. And 
for that reason, we like it and we'll have our unique angle on it. Must be interesting. And also it must be distributed in all sorts of different ways. Wholesale, retail, and then you have certain classes, you know, you guys would say uh, vault risk or species. Some of the personal lines items uh, get to market in unusual ways. And, you know, that two examples, species and vault risk, where that's in your marine class in Britain, that's in our inland marine class in the US. Well, thanks for that. That's always really valuable. There's always an educational element to this podcast, which is really good. Now, you've had your major results, you've done your IPO. You've got yourself a platform now. I'm sure the market's going to want you to grow. They want to see growth. Obviously, they're getting growth at the moment. How does that manifest itself? We might, for example, see any international growth. Or are you going to stay very focused on such a big and deep market that you've got? I think that our strategy that I've described is unquestionably extensible, for sure, into international markets. And as you know, Mark, I spent half my career living and working internationally. While I was at Hanover, I led the acquisition of Chaucer, sat on the board for you know a long time. So I'm very involved in the Lloyds market. And I see terrific opportunities over there. And in markets such as in London, it's an underwriter-led market, which is very much sort of consistent with the kind of things that we like. But all that said, that isn't our plans at the moment, right? We're a company that closed out 2022 with a, a billion one direct written premiums. And there is so much runway on what we're doing that maintaining kind of the focus towards the things that we've already started is paramount. But on a medium-term horizon, we want to be ready for opportunity. And there is going to be dislocation. There's no question about it. And when that happens, we want to be one of the companies, one of the few companies that can really smartly benefit from that. And I think we will be. And that might be international, by the way. I suppose my podcast really seems to be perhaps a little bit London-centric. And obviously, it's great talking to you. You're in Texas and I'm here in London. <laughs> um, but London hasn't had it this good for such a long time. And we've had some wonderful small businesses really coming through and really maturing. And also showing businesses that only started two or three years ago, now getting up to almost to your size, what a platform it can be, You know what leverage you give yourself by being on that platform. Although those big accelerated growth scenarios tend to be a bit more reinsurance focused and we're a specialty focused organization. And so if you took the universe, for example, Lloyd's companies, there are some of that new class, but they're probably not the guys who have gone from you know zero to a billion in the course of three or four years yet. I mean, there's some great businesses there. There's great people. There's a lot of interesting innovation. And even on the reinsurance side, examples you know, like Key and so forth, really terrific innovation. And we watch that, right? We, we, you know, There's a lot to be learned there, for sure. What about M&A? Again, you're a public company. <laughs> you've got a currency. You've printed your own money. This is a great place to be. I wish I had my own currency. I can look and see its value on the stock exchange every day. What about M&A? Well, you know, I think Voice of Insurance, there's a lot of SPACs out there that you could, you could invert into. <laughs> I can reverse into, you could, yeah. yeah. you could de-SPAC the podcast and uh, and you never know, right? There's been crazier de-SPACing than your podcast, I'll tell you that. I couldn't afford the DNO premiums. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, on the M&A front, well, first, there's a lot of expertise here. Again, you know my background. I uh, That is something that was in the scope of my responsibilities during my prior experience at Hanover. And we did a lot of deals, quite honestly. I think what goes with that is a lot of experience that brings great references of great transactions and a lot of scar tissue, right? Yeah. And what I'd say about M&A is that we have so much momentum in our business and there's such confidence in organic growth progression that the bar would be very, very high under ordinary circumstances and then even higher 
to not take risk that could unsettle that great momentum, right? And so I will never say never because I think that that's not responsible. We have to be thoughtful purveyors of our shareholders' capital. And when good opportunity presents, we should be prepared to move. But the bar is extremely high and is informed by lots of experiences that I personally have had. It's just not the time that people aren't looking to buy and, and people aren't really looking to sell either because everyone's got their head down, busy trying to make money in, in the best conditions we've had for such a long time. So perfectly understandable. Exactly. Exactly. And then you have to be a little suspicious of M&A in this environment, right? Like why, right? Because when I look at our business, not to promote us too much, but I see unlimited is not the right way to describe it, but a tremendous amount of organic growth opportunity. And so I think it speaks volumes to the hard work that we've done to put ourselves in that position. If you see companies pursuing M&A in this environment, you have to wonder how strong is the core franchise to have to do that? Listen, I'm not casting judgment. It's just how we think about it, right? You'd be kicking the tires and wondering why, what's going on. More of a personal question. You've worked in public companies before, but you haven't been so front and center being the CEO. What's the difference being the CEO of a private company and CEO of a public company? I know it's it's kind of early days yet. You're not jaded yet. One thing I do know is that my mom gets to hear me speak publicly because I I believe she was on the earnings call earlier today. So (laughs) uh, that's the first thing that's that's a point of difference. I'd like to think that not a lot of things change, but they do. My own personal time allocation, time allocation of certain of our executive members certainly change. I think the biggest challenge when you're sitting in the CEO seat is inevitably the stock price, for better or for worse, is at least an active measure of how one important community views you. And it can become uplifting and disheartening at the same time, right? I try not to pay attention to it, but the truth is that I do pay attention to it. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But the, the trick is, I really think, is not to let it in any way influence how it is that we think about the way that we're building our business. Time is going to tell, right? We're a young company, right? We've only been public now for effectively a month and a half. And I'd like to think that as we look out quarter on quarter on quarter, it does not influence the sort of the North Star, our ruler and strategy, building durable businesses over the long term and our desire to invest smartly and so forth. I'm very hopeful that we'll stay true to that. Time's going to tell, right? And how that changes, we probably should have another conversation and you know, in a year and you can ask me that question and I'll say, well, that version of Andrew was really smart or that version of Andrew was really stupid, Mark. You should have known what well, we know now. It's so. about communication. If people know what they're getting, and we think when people buy Box Hathaway, they know what they're getting. They're not going to buy something that's leveraged itself up 20 times. Right. You know, there's a lot of cash there and you're wondering why that's not necessarily efficient, but it's also incredibly useful when you have a financial crisis and you can buy whole companies for half price. Exactly. But at least people know that's what they're getting when they get Berkshire. They're not going to get a financial engineering business. They're going to get a very solid balance sheet. And again, so I suppose it's down to your communication. It was good for you to admit that whenever I talk to a public company CEO and they said, I never look at the stock price. I know they're lying. It's just like asking me that I don't look at my download stats every morning. Of course I do. I want to see how the latest podcast is doing. Everyone does that because why wouldn't you? It's totally human. You have to do it. And, you know, the truth be told, Mark, is that any public company CEO, their own personal compensation is heavily levered to the the performance of the company and stock performance of the company. In our case, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but at the IPO, we gave stock to every single employee in our company. Everybody became an owner, right? That was pretty magnificent, right? There's not a lot of great examples of that. And the point was, as you would interpret, right, which is we want everybody to be invested in our company. 
you know, for better or for worse, as a result, every single person, you know, and of course, it was great that the stock, you know, rose so much after the IPO, because suddenly what we told them was X was worth X plus plus, right? That's a great thing. You don't want to back up on that. So, you know, the truth be told is, at least in our case, it has maybe a little bit greater meaning than otherwise it would when you have every single employee who's an owner. Well, it's remind them all that in the short term, it's a voting machine and in the long term, it's a weighing machine. So, you know, that's, that's yeah. whenever it goes down, that's what you say. <laughs> <laughs> Good analog. Well, Andrew, it's been fantastic talking to you. I know you've just done one set of results. It's only 13 weeks to the next, Andrew. Sorry to remind that. Yeah, on the treadmill. <laughs> Back on the treadmill. I really love checking in with you. It's always fun. It's the end of my day here, and it's the middle of your day, but it was the end of my day, and I feel like I've got more energy now. You've transferred that energy across the airwaves to me, as usual. And it's Well, thank it's, you. I'll be leaving 80 degree Fahrenheit for the Brits out there, 80 degree Fahrenheit, Houston to get on a plane here shortly to New York City, where apparently a snowstorm is moving in. So I might have a sadder face on before the day is out. Good luck with that. I hope you're okay. I hope it gets there. Yeah. I hope you're not stuck in a hotel somewhere in sort of Chicago or something. I hope so as well. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on the show and come back on again very soon. I really enjoyed talking to you again. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you having me. Be well. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>